2: All right, we now welcome on Rippy Wright's basketball correspondent, former Andy Ken- Kennedy staffer, author of the most famous assist in the history of the world, Bracken Ray. What's up, my man? How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Pretty good. I, uh, I. This is the time of year where I'm starting to get into college basketball, watch some Feast Week, obviously, as most people do. And then uh, I've watched some, as we record this on a Wednesday evening, I've watched a decent amount of hoops here in the last two, three nights. Uh, there's been a great slate of games this week, so kind of getting into it, and we'll, uh, we'll probably get to the college basketball as a whole piece of it at the end. But the Ole Miss Rebels are 6-1, mm-hmm. and one, and I would say, what do you want to describe this? A pleasantly surprising start? I think they look a lot better than we thought. How have you seen the first seven games? Yeah, I think so as well.
3: I mean, I think if you had told them they could go into uh, the ESPN Orlando tournament and go 2-1, and one, I mean, you'd probably take it. Um, it, we've talked about it, you know, multiple times. It's always important to win that first game and that bracket probably didn't end up being as strong as what some would hope because Florida state is, is awful right now. Um, but it was a good week and I, you know, I stepped away from the Oklahoma game with a lot more positives and negatives, even though it was a loss. Um, and when you've got a freshman guard that steps up, not only is it good from a trying to go win game standpoint, but th- this team has been, seems a lot more entertaining than last year and then three years ago as well. Um, so, you know, it was, it was fun to watch. Amari's a lot of fun to watch. He's really good at getting to a spot. And so, big one this week on Saturday.
2: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. And we'll get into the results. And I think what we really learned about this team, although you told me to keep an eye on that FAU game, and I felt like I learned a decent bit about that as well. But I felt like we really learned a lot about this team in Orlando, as we were discussing right before we started recording. Was it, like the ESPN.com Classic? Now, I mean, my God, can they not find a title sponsor? What's going on there? They're not getting real creative with the names. But a pretty good showing, a two-in-one showing We'll get to the results in a second, but you said this team is a lot more entertaining and a lot more fun, and I could not agree more. I have no idea how they're going to stack up against what appears to be just an absolute bear of an SEC this year, but it looks different, and it's a much more fun product to watch. I'll throw one thought at you and take you, let you take it in whatever direction yeah. you want to outside of that in terms of why you think this is more entertaining. To me, they have more shot makers and shot creators. The perimeter offense, particularly start your offense, does not look as painstaking at all. I mean, whether it's Abram or Brakefield to a degree looks like a different player. Miles Burns has done some nice things. Like, it just seems like a a guy having the ball in his hands, he can actually go do something with it as opposed to being so screwed down, you just have to basically manufacture a really clean look and pray to God it goes in. It just seems like they can create a lot more for themselves. And I got to be honest, I'm not sure that's what I thought would be the MO of this team. Yeah, you know, agreed. And, you know, I still am not
3: ready to buy in that it, they're elite um, at the shot-making piece and also beating people off the dribble and, and being it's able to off create. off the bell
2: curve of last year being so bad.
3: 100%. Yeah, it's, it's all relatively speaking. And so I think there's a few things when you look at it, right? If you take a step back, this team, and, and we've heard it the past couple of years, um, we're finally seeing it, they're playing – playing in transition more, right? They're getting out in the open court trying to push the ball. And I've always, and I think it's a mental thing, I've always noticed that Morrell, when he can get a bucket in transition early in the game or a few buckets in transition, his confidence increases. He sees the ball go through the goal and it helps him shooting. Um, And so, hey, you've got the transition piece that I think is working. I knew that Amari Abram um, was going to be their third guard. I did not expect him to go average 20 in this tournament. Uh, He has been able uh, – he's super solid. He's got an SEC body as a freshman. And like I said earlier, he's able to get to a spot. Um, And for him, a lot of times that spot is, you know, nice little mid-range game, uh, little dribble pull-up mid-range game. And what's super encouraging about him going forward is – I still think his potential is super high that he hasn't reached yet because uh, his handles are not super tight yet. And so once he gets his handles tight, he he's out-athleting people right now, but he'll be able to beat people off the dribble from both an athlete and skill standpoint going forward. So, you, you know, you've got the transition piece. You've got the Amari Abram piece. And then the last piece offensively that um, I think has gotten better is they ran a lot of continuation offense in the past uh, past year, and we used to think of that as like, hey, your, your motion offense. For them, it's been that dribble handoff, dribble weave with back cuts. This year, you can tell Kermit's running a lot more intentional action and kind of like one hitters to Morrell with Abram, so on and so forth. Where he's trying to create uh, mismatches for his guards and whoever's guarding them defensively, and so I think that's been a really bright spot. It shows me that he's got a lot of confidence in those two, and then obviously, if Mr. Ruffin can get healthy at some point too, um you know I think that we'll we'll see more intentional action run going forward with this offense.
2: You texted me about the 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 more kind of deliberate quick hitting offense, more direct as opposed to that constant motion offense, which I think most of our listeners would probably interpret as you just outlined that dribble weave um, that kind of yep. gets your kind of your general, like you said, motion offense going. And in years past, particularly when you've had guys, you know, a banged up um, Devontae Shure, um, you know, morell to some degree, but then I'm thinking a little bit of roughing before he kind of got his feet under him as a freshman to where they couldn't really get by anyone and so it yep. created a lot of wasted seconds in the shot clock, you know, with a bunch of, I won't say completely pointless motion, but non-productive motion, you know, 20 to 25 feet from the basket without much to show for it at all. And it made for an incredibly rough product to watch. And it also made for shockingly a pretty tough offensive output. And then you just hit the second part of it and beat me to it. It's like, because they're running more quick hitting stuff to get guys open and allow them to make shots. Like, Don't you think that speaks to Kermit's, increased confidence in his ability to guys to take create and make their own shots. If you can get them in advantageous situations, because I have to imagine there's a reason he did not do that in years past is probably because he just didn't believe it would work. Yeah, I
3: think so. I think he's definitely, if you compare it to last year, got a lot more confidence in his guards. And you know, the other piece going back to the dribble handoff. A lot of times and what I noticed with the, the group last year is they were running the offense just to run the offense, right? And they were, hey, I've got to get to this spot on the wing, et cetera. When you go to more quick hitters, it's very aggressive. It's very intentional of what you're trying to do. And so just as much as it is a schematic thing, I think it's also a mentality thing. Um, something that's really interesting is like kind of the opposite of all this. There's a lot of blue blood coaches that run less than 10 plays in a game. Right. And so it's all about kind of the fit and mentality of your group. Um, you don't have to go, you know, run intentional quick hitters and run 30 of them in a game. You've just got to know your group and know how they can get to the second level. And I think so far this year, he's done a good job of evolving to that.
2: Let's get into these last three games in particular a little bit. So they get a win over a pretty good Stanford club. I don't know how they'll stack up in the Pac 12. I looked up earlier where I thought where the preseason predicting the finish. I think it was somewhere closer to the top than the bottom. I can't remember off the top of my head. And then beat a pretty good Siena club, or at least a kid with a really good guard. What's that kid's name? JV and McCollum. He was really, really tough for them. Let's start with the Stanford game, I guess. How do you think that win stacks up? What was most impressive to you about what you saw in that game?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just what was super impressive to me is just getting it done, getting the first game in one of these tournaments done. Uh, to to be able to get a second-round opponent that is decent, right? That's the piece that's super important against Stanford. I'm probably on the opposite side. I think they'll finish closer to the bottom uh, half of the Pac-12. Haas, um, their coach, he's been there for, I don't know, eight years or so now, came from UAB. He's a, he's a North Carolina, like uh, Roy Williams, Dean Smith guy. He's on the hot seat right now, but he was a good win. You know, they battled, and that's kind of when we saw Amari take off, right? He had 26 points while shooting like 70% from the field. So, I mean, that was that was super impressive to me. And um, I think the other piece that was super impressive is they shot 50% from the field. We haven't seen that a whole lot lately. So going forward, um, you know, I, I think that was what stood out to me in the Stanford game.
2: And particularly with Abram, I guess that's as good of a transition to any to get to Amari Abram was and I hope I'm not mixing up the games here. I think it was after the Stanford game. It may have been Sienna, but wasn't this the game where he had the kind of the rough first half? He sat for a bit and then he came back and it was kind of like he responded pretty well. I believe the majority of those 26 points came in the second half. Let's just start there. You know, we talked about this as we when we had you on in the preseason with Ruffin being out for whatever extended period of time he was going to be out at the time and they announced it, clearly he did not play in this tournament. We'll get to that storyline in a second, is he was going to have to be the second guard. They just really didn't have any other option. And for that kid to answer the bell in a tournament like that, in an environment like that, that early, because you think, I mean, Ruffin was just finding his groove last year when he unfortunately tore his ACL, he took some time to get it like to get his C legs under him and get adjusted to high major college basketball. It's come a lot more naturally to a kid like Amari Abram. And you know, some of that's body type and being more physically ready to play in the SEC or high major basketball. Whereas like Ruffin just kind of, I mean, Ruffin seems like a strong kid for his frame. It's just the frame is pretty small. He just, his yeah. ability to completely kind of just. Fill into that role is the reason Ole Miss is six and one. Look, they've had other guys be well. We'll get to the breakfield piece of it in a second. But he, to me, has been the most important piece on this team so far. And it's been impressive to watch as someone who's worked on the staff, like kind of articulate how difficult that is to do to just step into major college basketball immediately, play a big role, and then do well with it.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they always say a lot of times, like running back with their vision, you know, sometimes you just can't teach the vision, right? For him, it's like, strength and conditioning programs in college are a really good and beneficial thing, but he came into this program as a freshman looking like an SEC player, ready to go, and we have not seen a whole lot of that in the past, right? It takes some guys some time to develop, or the guys that come in looking like SEC dudes, Romello White, for example, transfer, right? And so he was able to come in and do that. Like I said, his handles need to be a little tighter, but He's playing fairly controlled, and the, the game that I was most impressed, obviously is the one we're talking about, Stanford. He only had one turnover in 30 minutes as well, um, with a lot of touches, bringing the ball a lot. So I think that um, that is going to be huge going forward. He's also very composed mentally, which I think is is big. Um, Kermit talks about how he doesn't you know believe in like these freshmen laws where you'll see freshmen go four or five games um, where they're just not consistent. They don't play well. I think there's truth to it, right? Like the stereotype that exists, I believe in it, but this is not a kid that I see is going to run into freshman wall. He's he mentally seems uh, composed. And when adversity strikes, he, he can battle it.
2: And for the lack of a better phrase, because this piece of it is a little bit harder to quantify. He seems to love this shit. Like when they get into a <laughs> tighter game, instead of kind of getting the deer in the headlights thing, he seems to be, and Burns is an older guy in IIA that has this a little bit more too, but they just seem very demonstrative and very like, I don't know, watching both of them play basketball through a very short sample size of seeing them, both of them seem to be just absolutely thrilled they're in a six point game with, you know, X amount of minutes left, which not everyone has.
3: Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with that. And like, you know, for Morrell, Morrell's not going to be that vocal guy. Yeah. And so, like, having a guy like Miles Burns, um, Miles defensively plays so damn hard, super aggressive, rebounding. You know, I still think there he may be a little bit of a liability on the offensive end. I wonder about that a little bit in conference play. But he's the guy that – um you know, you can definitely tell, hey, this is year five of playing college basketball for him. He's playing at a level that he's never played at before, and he's excited and embraces the opportunity.
2: Abram was a highly rated kid, a four-star kid. He came out of one of those academies in California. I can't remember exactly which, what it was. Uh,
3: see. Yeah, the, it was the one that um, uh, Jalen Reed, Justin Reed's son, um, was yeah. at. So they, they played together.
2: And he's, you know, I think in 247, he was like 106th or something. So just outside the top 100, it's a big get for Ole Miss basketball. But it didn't feel like it kind of came with the hype of a Morrell. And I know Morel was a higher-rated player. At the, I think he was the highest-rated signing in the history of the school. The basketball program, I think, was viewed by fairly um, – I don't mean this like in a wrong way, but somewhat fair-weather fan base where, hey, if you're good, they'll buy in. They have great crowds. If they're not, it's kind of like, oh, what's going on here type of thing. I like, – What Do you think it was overshadowed by Like his signing and his ability to contribute immediately was uh, overshadowed a bit, kind of just the state of the program? Or do you just think this is a little bit surprising? Because for a guy, Kermit Davis, that struggled to sign shot-making guards, and by struggled, he really hasn't signed a single one of them. Um, I guess outside of morale, that's probably not totally fair. But, you know, consistently get guards in the SEC that can make shots. To me, if this year goes halfway well for him to where, you know, we're having the conversation about does he get another year, I'm pointing to this kid and saying I can go get two more of these.
3: Yeah, no no doubt, no doubt. Um, I think that's definitely the sales pitch. I think you hit the nail on the head when you first started talking about him. He committed in early March, and that wasn't a good time for Ole Miss basketball program, right? (laughs) I mean, you're you're weeks away from, you know, both of your assistants leaving for other P5 jobs, and I think there were some – some thoughts on like, Hey, are we going to be back next year or not? Whether that was real conversation or not, but I think he was ranked as high as like the 12th best point guard in his class. And so I think a lot of, a lot of, you know, the oversight on him was just frustration of the fan base of like, Hey, you know, what, what is, what is going forward look like, but he had some real P five offers out there um, as well. and, you know, you're right. Like, hey, what if you get a healthy rough and back, having three good guards um in this league is always a, is always a fun thing and an entertaining thing.
2: The Siena game was a little bit telling to me if I, I'm still in with you and to the larger degree. And I think everybody listening is is like this is not look for so many years. We got fooled. I say we the like being a young reporter would get fooled by kind of the preseason hype and like a 20 year old me versus a 25 year old me realized oh, none of these coaches are going to get up here and go, you know, guys, I think we're going to actually going to suck. So, like, let's temper things down, maybe set the win over under 15 and a half, and, hey, we'll rebuild toward next year. But in the kind of the – as the transfer portal hit in college basketball before the football piece of it, you would get new guys in and new talent in, and they would talk all of them up. And I feel like a lot of times – I mean, hell, I think one of Kermit's I think it's second year, like we got, I, I swear to God, I think I wrote a headline wherever I was at the time about like, this might be a second weekend of the insane tournament team. That did not turn out <laughs> that way to any degree to whereas now. I feel like it's flipped the other way and people are naturally skeptical, but in this Siena game, what I thought was telling was they had a slog of a first half. They're down one at halftime. I think the score is 27 to 26. They scored four. I wish I could get the first half, second half splits on Ole Miss's site. They scored 48 points in the second yep. half to win that game going away. And that's where the guard on the other side that had scored 24 points had a quick start to the game. And I agree. Kermit always talks up the opponent, particularly when they win the game. Every coach does. He's not unique. But that J.B. and McCollum kid for Siena was really, really weird. special. And yeah. so on that note, last year – I looked this up earlier. Last year in the second half of games, Ole Miss averaged – 32 points in the second half. Now imagine if you take out the non-conference games, what that number looks like. That's 268 out of 354 Division I programs. That's uh, not great, Bob. And my point in that is they were so offensively inept, they weren't capable. Like if they were 27-26 at halftime, or God forbid, they were down 36-26, they just weren't winning the game. They didn't have a 40-something point half in them, no matter how well they guarded, to flip the script And for Ole Miss to be able to do that, and they've done it a couple of times this year to kind of explode for offense in the second half, I do think that is somewhat of a tangible sign that no matter how they stack up in terms of the SEC, this team is better and different offensively than Kermit's last three teams.
3: Yeah, I agree for sure. And that was another game. I think they shot about 50% from the field. And, you know, the thing playing a Sienna probably going to end up, I don't know, top 200 team, but. Those are just neutral site games. You just got to go take care of business, right? And you got a kid McCollum who gets hot, and that's a kid last year's team and um, Brian senior year team that could have beaten you. Um, You know, then I think that's what you're saying is the difference here. Um, So you just go take care of business, and they did. Hey, first half wasn't great, but you have 48 in the second half. I wonder when the last time we've scored 48 neutral site game has been. Um, and you out-rebound them by 12. And that's the big one to me is, hey, you go play this low major school, you have got to take care of business on the boards. And if you don't, it's a concern. And if you do, it's kind of a a nothing burger. But they did. Um, And so, hey, up 12 on the boards in that game as well was impressive to me.
2: And then you get to the Sunday game, uh, Oklahoma. I watched this one start to finish. I was by myself. Actually, times are changing at Ole Miss basketball. I put red zone on the smaller TV. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I watched, I watched this game and they lose 59, 55. They have a couple of really bad possessions to end the game. It was a slog of a game, but I kind of sided with you where I believe earlier when we were talking, you said you took more positives than negatives out of that game. I actually did too. Cause I think Oklahoma will be a pretty decent big 12 team. And there were points in that game where they were, even though they only allowed fifty nine points, they were struggling to get stops in like three to four minute stretches. And I'm sitting there thinking, like last year's team. I mean, my God, how many stretches of six plus minutes did they have without making a field goal? And the game just completely unravels away from them. And then it, it kind of game devolves into a farce. Where as in this game, Ole Miss, despite not playing well toward the end, despite it not being any sort of offensive juggernaut by any stretch, was able to weather the storm by shot creation. I, um, Abram had a big three. You had Brakefield with the big one that stopped the run at one point in that game. They were able to turn what last year seemed like 14 to 16, three, something like that runs into, Hey, they got us on an eight, three run, maybe get to the next media timeout and kind of figure these things out to keep them in the basketball game till the end, where it just feels like last year's team in particular, that would have turned to 12 and you're an uphill battle for the next 34 minutes or whatever you have left in the game.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, I mean, Look, you lose by four, right? But we've been talking the past 10 minutes or so about offense and the improvement there. But holding a team like Oklahoma, who I think is a tournament team, under 60 points, you know, in a neutral site game is impressive. They had a really good guard that I liked a lot. And another thing that stuck out to me about that game is, hey, another Amari Abram game, you know, check. TJ Caldwell played pretty good in that game. Um, I think he had double digits, Um, in that game and was very efficient as well and so once you get Ruffin back and healthy hey you've got three good guards but if you look at Abram came in in the summer and Ruffin's been banged up like they have these three have not played together a lot so a lot of talent there but there's got to be this cohesiveness that may take a second to figure out Um, but the positive is hey if you got a guy like T.J. Caldwell, that can come in every couple of games and give you, you know, give you 10 or whatever he gave you. and um, 10 yeah, points, I mean, I think, two
2: turnovers in 19 minutes with a rebound and an assist. That's not terrible.
3: Not terrible, not terrible. So, um, you know, he's one – he's more of a Abram's a today ready to go. I think he's an all-conference guy in the next year or two. T.J. Caldwell's – and I'm not making this comparison, but he's kind of got the TD where it's – It's the potential get. Uh, You go offer him and you try to develop him. And for him to have a game like this this early in his career, I think uh, I think was another positive. It was very quiet.
2: It was. But your point is well stated because when you get in like a late January game, this is not probably the greatest example this year, but like at Auburn or something, uh, and somebody's out or someone's got an ankle twisted up. And for a guy to be able to give you 10 minutes without looking like a complete and total liability out there, um, is huge. You're going to need that if you're going to compete on a nightly basis in the SEC. Um, you know, James White, I would say, not the antithesis of it last year but he had to play a lot because of injuries. And there were times where he just looked like a true freshman. and was just kind of lost, but they just had to stick him out there where Caldwell didn't look like he was really swimming in the moment at all. And I do think that will be valuable because in another piece of it, we'll get to in just a second. is like, they're playing a lot of dudes and he's one of them and that's got to be somewhat encouraging seven games in.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I've seen them, you know, in a few games this year, play 12, 13 guys. That bench has got to get shorter at some point, but I I, I do think Kermit believes in this uh, team having a bigger bench than some of his previous in the past have had.
2: He said he had no problem playing ten dudes. He said that I believe after the Stanford game, no, Sienna, I believe it was. So, where do you stand on that? Is because like you see this sometimes in the NBA where you have guys that could you know the teams that can play ten guys. And they're really, really good in the regular season where there's load management nights off injuries and all that stuff. And then it kind of when it gets to the playoffs, it's like, actually, this depth doesn't matter much. College basketball is a different sport. But where do you stand on kind of shrinking your rotation to eight versus being cool with playing 10 guys? Because that from substitution patterns to a lot of other things, that is a big difference, even though it's two more people.
3: Yeah, 100 percent. I, You know, I think it all has to do with rhythm. Um, and you know, there's some guys that hey, will come out like a minute before the media timeout, they need that rest and can get right back into it. Um, and then there's others that like are really good players, but playing 28 minutes and if you sub them out five or six times, it's a problem. It gets them out of whack. And I think there were actually times uh, two two years ago, three years ago, where with Brian, it would mess him up a little bit when he'd get taken out. So yeah. I, I think it kind of there's a this rhythm thing, and to be completely honest with you, there's only so much in the preseason that you can you know simulate game wise um, to where like it's kind of hard to tell when you're just doing you know for you know you're just doing uh, pickup games and controlled scrimmages like what rhythm will look like for your roster. So it's good to go play a bunch of dudes early. In your non-con where it's a little weaker schedule and try to figure it out. But, you know, one thing that's always been real interesting to me is, like, watching Duke and Carolina. uh, Carolina, a big weakness of theirs this year is, like, they can only really play, like, six guys. And it it bit them in the ass against Bama in that four-overtime game. But what's been interesting to me about Duke and Carolina since I began watching basketball is, like, their nine through 13 guys on the bench are, like, not great and never really play. And sometimes if they have to play a ninth guy, it's like a walk on. So it's always been interesting to me that some of these blue bloods, like, can't, you can't fill that 10 to 13 spot. And I think a lot of it has to do with, like, hey, it's development spots, but also it's really hard to get people in the door for that 10 to 13 spot with them knowing they're not going to get playing time, which is kind of obvious.
2: Yeah. A lot of those late K teams, my uh, roommate in college, Michael Portner, is uh, a huge Duke basketball fan, and like I, I I actually learned a lot about kind of K's strategy and stuff the last couple years of his tenure just w- watching games in where you would get to that eighth guy, and it's like, who's he? And he's like, I think his granddad cut a check. Like, he's a walk-on here, but now he has to go yeah. for 12 minutes out here, which is always interesting to me. Miles Burns, he's playing 26 yeah. minutes a game. You mentioned it. There's not a whole lot to offer at the offensive end of the floor it seems like sometimes he's at least you mentioned the transition piece of it like can't it's I don't know this like to be true because I haven't watched all seven games, but it seems like he's not a total liability if you got him in transition and he can get to yeah. the, the layup. but offensive wise like the half court, he's not offering you a lot. but man, he's rebounding okay. and the guy has twenty two steals through seven games. and just could this qualify as the biggest surprise on the team because it's an NIA guy. I agreed with you in the preseason podcast, right? Is this guy actually a high major player? I didn't know anything about him, kid. I'm just like, NIA, this doesn't seem – that seems to be a gigantic jump. This seems to be a pleasant surprise. It's a guy that can at least eat up minutes and be okay on the defensive end of the floor.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
1: No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a surprise for me. I was like, I was shocked when I saw the first game uh, this year and he started. And honestly, in my mind, I went, uh-oh, Kermit's trying to send a message. Who is he sending the message to? Yeah. Is it James White? Is it, you know, is it Abram? Like, who is he trying to send a message to? Um, here's what I think about Miles Burns. I think he's, a you know, very good on the defensive end, good rebounder for his size. And then we talked about it, like, good for the locker room and for that team. Um, from a chemistry standpoint, I still, what I'll say – Still don't know that he's a high major caliber offensive player. So, what's going to be interesting to see is there's kind of a pro and con, right? It's like once SEC play comes around, it's like he's going to stop the bucket, but he's not going to get the bucket. Are we playing a good offensive game? If we are, we're probably good to go, right? It's net neutral. But um, if we're not, if it's kind of a game playing in the 50s or 60s, you may need a guy like him to get you like eight points rather than three or four points. So it's gonna I think that's the piece that's gonna be interesting uh watching him going forward. We know all the positives that he gives. What can he give you offensively um as they head into conference play?
2: Well then like if and when Ruffin comes back, doesn't particularly if you get some options to play some three guard lineups, doesn't Burns become a bench guy? He started all seven games, but don't you think at some point if this team's fully healthy you get Ruffin back in the fold that's a guy that's maybe your first guy off the bench. I mean, he's six six two ten. He's somewhat interchangeable, yeah. at least on the defensive in the floor. Doesn't that 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 screams six defensive man that can eat up some minutes as opposed to a starter? If he's a starter, it seems like okay. What went wrong here?
3: Yep, one hundred percent. I think what is could drive Kermit crazy is you sub Ruffin for Burns, you start scoring a lot more, but that defense it could could become an issue because. It's such a small sample size. I think he played like 14 games last year. And Ruffin's got pretty quick hands, but there's some big guards in the league this year. Arkansas's point guard six seven this year. Smallest player six six. You see it a lot in the NBA the past decade. I think people are going to post ISO Ruffin, um, and so what they're going to do is they're going to find their guard and bring their big man, or if they're playing positionless, you know bring whoever their five is out to the wing and people are going to post ISO Ruffin uh, to go get a bucket. And guards are a lot better about that as we sit in 2022 than they were 10, 20 years ago. Cause that wasn't happening just a ton. Um, so that the, the one concern there is when Ruffin comes back, Hey, he's pretty good on ball defender, got quick hands, whatever, but he's a small guy and I think that there's going to be, uh, I think you take a little bit of a step back defensively when he joins.
2: Yeah, that's going to be an interesting little kind of sub conundrum with this team because you hit, you, you're dead on with that. Because you saw in the 14 games that Ruffin played last year, teams were already starting to do that, particularly teams that featured big lineups. And I'm curious to see how that plays out. I think the biggest piece that you hit on a second ago, whether it relates to Burns, and I'll throw Robert Allen in this conversation too. Um, Kermit got asked a question after one of those games about Burns, and he's like, you know, he's just so happy to be doing what he's doing. He comes from the NIA level, which Kermit just didn't miss a beat, said that's a great level, and I was like, well, what's below that? Is that Juco in high school? I mean, what what, what am I missing here? (laughs) And he said he's just glad to be playing on national TV. He really cares about that. He's an older guy, so obviously, you know, 22-year-old or however old he is, is more of an adult than some of your younger guys on the team. They now seemingly, without knowing much about the identity of the rest of this team yet – have two really big, like, give a shit guys. I interviewed Robert Allen for a Grove Collective story in the summer in an NIL interview, and that guy almost teared up, like, three times. Like, not even just talking about the injury, just talking about how he had to miss last year, not being out there, talking, like, specific games. That guy, if you want to fault him for anything, you can't tell him that he doesn't care because that dude cares a ton. And with Burns in there, too, with two older guys, when you get into the dog days of late January and February – and things start slipping a little bit, those are two guys that is not going to let anything slide. And as you, as someone who's been in a locker room, that's really, really invaluable in college hoops.
3: 100%. And I think it's deteriorating year over year, right? And I'm, I'm a, I am am i ai like the portal. I like NIO, all that stuff. But, hey, you've got some people making more money than others. You've got guys that transfer in that had no idea anything about your school outside of the fact that it was under the SEC. Compared to 20 years ago, you've got tons of four-year dudes. And so having these guys that come in and care as much as they do is huge. But I also think, hey, basketball is a game of runs. And you mentioned it for, with this tournament this week is, um, you go get on a six-zero, eight-zero run, you get popped in the mouth, and you're a freshman, sophomore, and you don't know how to handle that. You played a ton of AAU. I bet most of these guys were on thirty-win high school teams. It's hard to acclimate to that um, and and realize it. And so having these older guys that can stop the bleeding, so to speak, from a mental standpoint more than a talent standpoint, um, I do think is huge for going forward.
2: And I'll just call it now. They're going to get in a chippy game, and that Burns might just actually pop someone. You mentioned getting popped in the mouth. He might actually throw a bow or something. Like, he seems to have a lot of that in him, which I'm interested to see how that plays out throughout the year. I can't believe we made it 35 minutes or whatever we've been into this podcast without talking about Jamie and Breakfield, as I say that as the man who dictates the show here. Um, Just looks like a totally different player. Uh, uh, Excuse me, Kermit has mentioned his conditioning a couple of times being a lot better. There's one of those games they played down there in Orlando where I don't think he came out in the second half. I think it was Stanford. He plays 36 minutes. Then he plays 34 against Stanford and 33, or excuse me, against Siena and 33 against Oklahoma. That's a guy in those three games. That's pretty much given you 17 and eight. Um, he looks a lot more engaged on the defensive end of the floor. He's crashing the yep. glass very hard. His last three games, I believe he has third 25 rebounds that'll cut it that's a huge if you're talking about this team actually competing in the sec and actually kind of being in that middle of the pack and being around maybe get an ncaa tournament bid uh, someone tweeted me that joe Lenardi had him in their first four out or something right right before the end of the week last week i can't believe all Lenardi's in the bunker already given bi-weekly first (laughs) rounds but if you're talking about a team actually changing its ceiling don't you look at a guy like that because you know the talent's there he has an incredible recruiting pedigree if, they, if he can be 75% of whatever the most positive evaluator thought he could be, that's a huge difference maker for them, and he looks like a different player.
3: Yeah, 100%. And listen to this, 62% from the field, 43% from three, and I think he's their leading rebounder so far this year. Not bad. Um, so with, with break field, I totally agree with the conditioning piece. The other piece that I think – so conditioning, say the cardio piece – the thing that stood out to me in the Oklahoma game, especially on that, when he kind of crossed the guy dribble step back, he, his first step is quicker this year than it was last year. Um, and he's always kind of had the reputation of old man game, a little slow, whatever the case may be, but he looks quicker to me. The thing that's super important uh, for Breakfield for me this year is the consistency offensively. Um, so like, he's had three big games um, this year where he had, like, 17 or so. And then he's had, like, four or five games where he was just kind of kind of quiet um, offensively, like still rebounding well, which is good, you need. But he needs to be a guy that's, like, consistently giving you the 11 to 12 a game. And the the spurts of, like, 18 and then 4 and then 16 and 8, you know, that's not – they need consistency out of him offensively for this team to do what they want and get to the postseason.
2: Not to get too far kind of cart before the horse here, but, you know, we talked about how this has been a pleasant surprise and that this team has looked a little bit – or a lot more competent and, like, a little bit just overall better and more complete than we thought they would. I know you've seen the beginning of the SEC schedule. Holy cow, is this sucker a bear. They start – I'll just go through the first four games real quick. They start Tennessee at home at Alabama. Wolf at Mississippi State, who's looked like kind of a defensive monster. You know, I mean, you were on state, that s-
3: state, state, uh, state will be top twenty-five going into conference play. I think. So, I'm, too, not so, that, I'm not saying I'm not saying they're top twenty-five. I'm not saying they're. Top. They are top twenty-five, top good defensively. They have not allowed sixty points yet this year. We're all tomorrow is December. I'm not saying they're top twenty-five talented, but the their schedule they'll enter January top twenty-five.
2: Yeah, no no, 100%. And then you get Auburn at home and then Georgia at home. And I won't go much further than that. There's a trip to Arkansas that looms like two weeks yeah. later. But point being is like this team could start 1 and 4 or 0 oh and 3 or my, I mean my god, 0 yeah. oh and 4, 0 oh and 5 in the conference, which I think would kind of be too big of a hill for them to climb and still not be terrible, right? I mean, the SEC is a bear, but I mean, you talk about a tough schedule. to start the only thing you could have done is throw Kentucky somewhere in that mix in that first four games after that or whatever. Nope. it'd be tougher. That's going to be a tough sledding and they're going to have to make their hay at home. I don't know if they can steal one at Alabama or stay on the road. I'm not going to go game by game yet. But I, I guess what I would caution if you're like kind of the casual Miss basketball fan out there, they could get off to a rough starting conference play and still be okay because those first four games are just brutal.
3: Yeah. So let's talk about kind of the positives going into conference play and then the the hurdles as well. So, There's a very realistic chance this group could be ten and two going into conference play, um, which is great. The second piece is league is super strong, like one through eight, you know, what, what, maybe even one through nine. That bottom five or so is still, I mean, is a drag. Like those are games you got to go win. They're not the net RPI bombs like they were, you know, ten years ago. Like most of these teams are borderline top one hundred. But those are games, and Ole Miss has ten games against teams eight through fourteen in the league, or something like that. Those are games you got to go take care of business, and a lot of them. If you if you're real serious about having postseason aspirations, so that's the positive for this group. The the thing that I'm a little nervous about with this group is a the five spot. You know, McKinnis is not given. Um, not giving us what we've thought so far. And he was defensive player of the year in the SWAC. And at times, people back to the basket have gone and gotten buckets against him. Offensively, they're getting nothing from that spot. Uh, he's averaging like four a game. He can't do much back to the basket. So I'm, I'm a little worried about that spot once you get to SEC play because there are some good bigs out there. And then the second piece that's been a positive so far – but I wonder how it translates into conference play is this transition thing, right? They're pushing the ball up the floor and getting a lot of easy buckets in transition. We mentioned, hey, half court's gotten a little bit better because you got Abram. They're running these quick hitters. But for transition, when you play these teams that are in the top half of the league in the SEC, I wonder, I think a lot of them will, will be more athletic than we are. And do you want to get into a track meet with teams that are quicker and more of
2: athletic than you are? Yeah, no, 100%. And that's what's so fascinating is, like, you mentioned some of the quick hitting sets they've had to start the year. Like, do they kind of steep back more towards that and kind of take away the transition? Like, how much – how differently does that make them look offensively, and particularly as a younger guard, as your third guard, assuming Ruffin comes back healthy by yeah. that point? It's going to be fascinating to see how they play in that thing. I think that's a very interesting point. To your point about the schedule, I'll just give you the stretch that might make or break this sucker. Uh, I said I wasn't going to go game by game, but I'm going to do like half of it. So on February 4th, they will be coming off a home game against Kentucky. They go at Vandy, at Georgia, home versus South Carolina, at Florida. Those are four teams in that bottom four that you're talking about. Three of them are on the road. I mean – Three and one, you yeah. not to get too far ahead, but doesn't that feel like, man, if you go three and one, like that, that kind of has to happen.
3: That, ha- yeah. If you're two and two, yeah, I'm, I'm nervous, right? You gotta, you gotta go three and one in that, in that deal. And honestly, you could go four and oh if you're playing good. Yes. Um, you know, I don't think that's out of the realm with what we've seen so far. So I, I agree with you. That's a good way to look at it because if you're a tournament team, there's really no house money game, so to speak, but. Hey, if you go two and two in those first four, shit, you're feeling good. You know yeah, the first four huge. conference play. So um, I'm not saying those are house money games, but if you can do, if if you can go get, you know, some good one or two good ones there, um, that would be big. But yeah, it's a real interesting league this year. Um, Arkansas, Alabama, Kentucky, Auburn. You know, Arkansas, like I said, is so big and long. And then Alabama, what's interesting about them is they're very young, but they were so composed in that uh, game against North Carolina. And they've got a lot of guys that are kind of forwards in my head, but with guard skills. Um, so they're going to be they're going to be a lot of fun, a lot to watch. And I, I think Nate really likes that group.
2: Yeah, that, that was a terrific college basketball game they played on, was that Sunday against North Carolina. I was really impressed yep. with Alabama. They're really good. I want to give to that in just a second. The last Ole Miss storyline, I'd be, be remiss if we didn't do the roughing thing. So he doesn't yep. play in this tournament. He's not back yet. I have never proclaimed myself to be a doctor nor a genius, either one of those categories. I'm probably not checking either one of those boxes. But it comes out that he has the bone bruise in a scrimmage or exhibition or I forget whatever it was. And they've held him out since, but Kermit got asked about it after one of these games, and he talked about how he's lifting and getting stronger and doing a lot in his rehab. And we hypothesized this a little bit uh, in the preseason show, if I'm not mistaken. He tore his ACL in February, early February of last year. ACLs are not the 12-month to where you're back to yourself and 15-month things that they were 20-something years ago. But nine months is still a really ridiculously short turnaround for a major knee injury like that, I'm not saying a bone bruise didn't happen, but just from the reading, the tea leaves, does it sound like he just maybe wasn't quite ready there just from a knee health standpoint? And that's not a knock on him or anything that's happened in the process. Again, that's just a very short turnaround. I'm just curious if you're picking up on the same thing, because I thought Kermit's answer about that after one of those games in Florida was very interesting. It wasn't talking about whether the bruise and the swelling and all that shit went down. Yeah, I, I
3: don't know. The first thing that popped in my head, and by no means is this a mental issue, the kid's tough as nails, but I wonder physically if there's, a dur- there's durability issues with him because this is like his third different kind of injury since he's been at Ole Miss. Um, you know, I think if he plays Saturday, you would have to think it would be in a, in a limited role, which is a shame because fully healthy – I would love to watch Deshaun Ruffin on offense go against Alex Lomax on defense. Lomax is a really good defender. He's a little bigger than Ruffin, but not a lot. Steal you know, he's got real quick hands and has the ability to average, you know, two or three steals a game. So that was something, you know, going looking into the year, I was really looking forward to. And who knows um, what what Saturday will look like, you know, if for Ruffin if he plays or not in limited minutes or not. Um, but that was a storyline I was definitely excited about.
2: Go ahead and give me a preview. I mean, they need rough and back. I think that speaks itself. Yeah. I Look, if December 20th, he's still either not playing or playing 16 minutes a game in that last non-conference game, we'll have a different conversation. But, you know, we'll just see where that goes. Is Memphis an NCAA tournament team? Is this the last kind of major game in their non-conference schedule? Because after Memphis, they'll go Valpo at home, UCF at home, Temple at home, North Alabama at home, kind of that pre- Christmas stretch yeah. where you kind of get back at home, feel get a little bit better about yourself. Uh, the ironic yeah. part about that is your last year, y'all lost three like double overtime games against like teams that actually ended up being pretty good. <laughs> but anyway, that's typically yeah. your stretch where you kind of find out more about yourself. You practice a decent bit, no school. But we'll start with the Memphis. Are they a tournament team, and how big a game is this?
3: Yeah, I I, I do think they're a tournament team. Uh, I think this is going to end up being a quad one game for Ole Miss. Something really interesting, and I, this has not been broadcasted enough, in my opinion, um, is they have ten seniors on their team. Ten. Uh, That's not a of which,
2: away team off the uh, – you know, the, off when it was advertised.
3: They've got ten seniors on their team, five of which are fifth years. So you've got ten dudes that are 22, 23, 24. Um, and so – I mean, really experienced team, and I think that's a huge advantage for Memphis in this game. Um, if you think about it, I mean, that place is going to be packed. Half of their roster is from Memphis. Amari Abram, you know, I think he's calm, call and collective. He hasn't played in an environment like this. Uh, morell's from Memphis. At, I've seen that whole deal that Ole Miss-Memphis, like our players, it's a lot of adrenaline. It's a lot of emotion coming back to Memphis and playing. Um you know, play in, in that environment. So for Memphis, hey, what what's what's the positives? Hey, they're extremely old, experienced, um, in my opinion, one of the top defenses in the country. Penny, because NCAA and they've underachieved and all this stuff, I don't think he gets enough credit for um, how good of a defensive coach he is and how well they recruit defensively. And then the other thing that I think they do a good job of to look out for is um they've got great rim protectors and they force teams to turn the ball over at a pretty at a pretty nice clip. Um so that's kind of the the things that you know Memphis is really good at. I think the keys to win for Ole Miss is to continue, like we've talked about um, you know, getting past that first level, running these intentional offenses where you can get downhill and create. Um I think for Ole Miss I would like to see them pretty aggressive defensively. Uh, I think they'll run the one-three-one more than they have in the average game because there are times when Alex Lomax is in the game that you're playing – uh, Memphis will have shorter guards, and so the 1-3-1 one, one is super effective um, against shorter guards. So, for me, hey, you got to get past the first level, and I really want to see them turn it up defensively because – uh, Memphis does have some they've got some rotations where they'll have a sh- uh, shorter guards run that one-three-one. and statistically to date they've turned the ball over at a high clip as well
2: Last thing before we get to kind of this the college basketball and get out of here, is this a philosophy shift for Penny? After the whole Imani Bates you had the uh, uh, Wiseman didn't play much you got the big hype and the five stars and it set up for disappointment or just just the how the cookie crumbled in terms of roster construction this year I'm just curious if he's had any sort of philosophical shift on this whole deal
3: no I think it's more of the cookie crumbles because a lot of these old guys are Memphis dudes and guys from east or like uh Kendrick Davis is from SMU he's a transfer he's their best player like I think it's just hey four or five of these dudes literally I think he was their high school coach for and now they're old so I, I don't think um, – Penny's never going to have the luxury of being like Cal, one and done, like having all these five stars. But he, this is an old team. Like DeAndre Williams is one of my favorite players in that conference. Um, and he, was, he I think he was a Juco guy. But I don't see this being a thing where Penny's like trying to overload on your upperclassmen for going forward.
2: Biggest surprises in college basketball so far. What stood out to you?
3: Oh, man. Um, I mean, in the SEC, it's been uh, Missouri and Mississippi State being undefeated. Did not see that happening. Um, so, but, I mean, those are two things. Like we said, Mississippi State is really good um, defensively this year. And we knew I, – I thought Jans was the best, um, you know, fit higher combo in the SEC. Um, so, that was one of them. I knew Texas was going to be good this year. I thought they'd be like top 15. They are a national t- uh, title contender. Uh, Chris Beard's got that thing rolling. I love the way that he puts his staffs together. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun seeing like him go pick somebody from a low to mid-major as a head coach and them end up being the third assistant or a guy on support staff. Like he, he people love working for him. Um I think those are kind of the the surprises. And then the last one I'd say is like thought Bama was gonna be like a six or seven team in the NCAA tournament this year. They look like a top ten team right now. I mean, they they really do. They're young, they're composed, quinterly. You know, he's been around for a while now and he plays well. Um, but Brandon Miller, he actually didn't play very good in that North Carolina game, but he's a real dude and um, you know, he's gonna make a lot of money in the league one day.
2: Worried about Kentucky at all or is this early season Cal stuff? Because the two opponents they played, they got kind of run out of the gym against Gonzaga and then they didn't play I didn't think particularly well against Michigan State and lost that game.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, I think with Cal it's it's there's always always so much roster turnover that it's it's hard to tell. That Michigan State game was a phenomenal game, by the way. Um, but, you know, I think a big litmus test for them is going to be, um, I think it's Saturday against at Michigan. Like, I think that's going to be a really good one to see where is this team at. And you got to give Cal a lot of respect for the way he's scheduled, right? Gonzaga, uh, Michigan state, we said Michigan, UCLA and, uh, Louisville all before Jan one. I mean, that's, um, and Louisville is actually not very good this year, but, um, that's a pretty pretty aggressive schedule, so you got you got to give it to him because I think he's had some backlash in the past for that.
2: I watched uh, Virginia-Michigan from start to finish last night. Are we going to have another one of these teams? And I'm not necessarily dogging on it because I can appreciate the style, but, my God, are we going to have Virginia in 15 primetime games at 5 p.m. on Saturdays where the game's in the 50s? Because they look really <laughs> good so and so they sad. look really composed. I mean, they were down, what, double digits at halftime and then cut that thing to three points. Like three minutes in the second half, and then it was just a war. And Michigan just wasn't quite up for it. They just look really good. Somehow, Kihei Clark is still there. Not sure how that. Yeah, I was. I was and about
3: I was, to say. I was about to say. I think I was in high school as freshman year. Like if he looked he like Barry Ellis. He
2: get more shit. He just looks younger and smaller. Are we? Are they? are yeah, for real again. He's got it rolling again.
3: Yeah, he does. And look, I mean, he's he he's a hell of a coach. And you're even even these blue bloods like you're. Every now and again, you're going to have a step back here. It just kind of happens. Um, but, yeah, that I wonder how old that guy is. I mean, he's got to be 24, 25 at this point. And, he, and he's a good player. Like, he, he's fun to watch. Um, he does a pretty good job of kind of controlling that offense and creating himself. But, yeah, I mean, I, I,
2: I think this is like year six for him. It's unbelievable. And, like, one of the big incredible things about Virginia is, like, if you play like if you try to play isolation offense against them, no matter it seems like who the scorer is, you're just kind of screwed. And there's so many great players in college basketball that turn into lottery picks, particularly in that conference. It's kind of mesmerizing to watch how that kind of goes out the window when you play against that defense.
3: Yeah. And I just looked it up. So this is year five for him, which means he got a COVID year and he's got honestly, another. Uh, yeah. He... So, and, this should be the last year. If this oh, is your right? yeah. Is yeah. So, but I will say there was like three or four years ago where people were talking about how college basketball is down and, you know, there were some blue bloods that were down and whatever. And like a March was still fun, but people were bitching about, a lot about like November through February. One thing that's been really neat though is this COVID uh, extra COVID year has increased. Experience and also like having college dudes stick around a little bit longer. And I think NIL is probably going to help with that too. But I think it's been huge for for the game. And so having some of these guys, like Memphis, you know, we're, we we want to go kick that ass on Saturday. But it's kind of cool to see a team that's got 10 guys that are 22 or older. I think it's really good for college basketball.
2: Completely non-sequitur, but just on the, along the lines of old players. Isaiah Woolard, Ole Miss football, entered the transfer portal this week. I didn't know he had another year of eligibility. He took his first college carry when you were the fall of your junior year of college. That would be the fall of 2016, and he will play college football somewhere next year. Oh it's just breaking your brain because it broke so, mine too. So, I was like, "What in God's name? How is that possible?"
3: So I mean, he will he'll play at 25 years old.
2: Yeah, pretty much.
3: Like, that, yeah, you know that's a Joey Hawkins pro- product, baby.
2: Oh yeah, it is. I wrote a story on him when he was a recruit. Is one of the first big stories I wrote at the DM. He survived the tornado, and I, uh, I actually think I I quoted Joey Hawkins. That would be the last time I talked to Joey Hawkins was the fall of twenty sixteen. But just what a world we live in. Last thing, before I let you go. Who wins the SEC regular season? That is.
3: Oh man, that's tough. Um. Tennessee's up there for me. Barnes really likes that group and they've they're experienced. Um I'm going to go right now Tennessee or Bama
2: There you have it. So no Arkansas. You know Arkansas is getting a lot of buzz. You don't think they're quite there? No, I I they've got a they've got a shot too. They're super
3: long but um I don't know Tennessee and Alabama as of today are in the best rhythm. And Arkansas probably has just as big, if not a bigger ceiling than those two teams. But as of today, I'd say Tennessee or Alabama.
2: He is Bracken Ray, former Andy McKinney staffer, Rippy Wright's basketball correspondent. Looking forward to the year, dude. Always enjoy chopping it up, and uh, we'll talk to you here soon.
3: Absolutely. Looking forward to it.
4: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium?